Hello and welcome back to the Good Work Podcast. I'm Felicity Holstead, your host and the founder of Good Work. This week, my guest is Maya Welford. After graduating, Maya started working in banking and soon got involved in DEI initiatives. She launched a mentoring program that has now gone global and went on to start her own podcast, That's My Name, where she talks to guests about their names, naming histories and traditions, and the importance of getting names right. Maya, welcome to the Good Work Podcast. Thank you, Felicity. I'm really, really excited to be here. And and thank you so much for reaching out and inviting me on. I wanted to reach out because I've seen a lot of your work around socioeconomic diversity and inclusion. You appear in my feed on LinkedIn fairly often, which is a good thing because of the really cool work that you do. And so I'm kind of excited to get the chance to ask you a little bit more about it today. But what I'd like to start with doing is just asking a bit of background on you and your career journey so far, just so that listeners can get to know you a little bit more. So I have worked for about five years now, which has actually flown by. So yeah, I studied psychology at university. So I went to King's and what really motivated me to study psychology is I'm really interested in people and why they behave in the way that they do. I'm always kind of observing people and I'm like, why did you do that? Why did you say that? And I'm always trying to kind of like analyze. Sometimes I find myself kind of diagnosing people, but yeah, I'm just really, really interested in why people behave in the way that they do. But in addition to that, I'm also really interested in and passionate about supporting people. So I guess what drove me to study psychology was this interest and passion in understanding people and why they behave in in the way that they do, but then also thinking about the mental health side of things and the well-being side of things. So that drove me to study psychology. I actually joined psychology wanting to go in and study clinical psychology and then be a clinical psychologist. I think if there's any kind of psychology grads listening, this is kind of the the goal and the aspiration of like 90% of people going in to study psychology. But very, very quickly after I joined the degree, learned that psychology is so broad and there's so many different kind of elements and aspects to psychology. And actually it's everywhere. So I thought, okay, let me explore what's out there, keep an open mind. And then that led me into the world of HR. So then I did a few internships within human resources during university and then went on to join a human resources graduate program at a bank. And I've been there now for four years. I did the grad scheme and then spent a year in well-being. So thinking about employee well-being, improving colleague well-being, and then actually completely pivoted my career and now work within this weird and wonderful field called behavioral finance but it still uses kind of my background in psychology so I guess a theme that's gone through a lot of my roles I've had is psychology and this interest in humans and and how they behave in the way that they do also during the graduate scheme that I was on I did a part-time master's so that was in corporate responsibility and sustainability. So again, comes back to this passion and interest of mine of supporting communities and having that positive impact. Actually, my dissertation perhaps links onto some of the themes of this podcast around like diversity, equity, inclusion, and so on. So my, my dissertation was on thinking about the gender and ethnicity pay gaps in relation to artificial intelligence and how artificial intelligence 
may help or hinder closing the gaps. So yeah, another big interest and I guess theme that has come through throughout my career so far is also this piece around diversity, equity and inclusion. I also have my podcast, which is all about names and also recently qualified to be a kind of transformational coach as well. So there's there's lots going on. There's so much. I have to say, it, it sounds like from, from what you've said about how long you've been working that we're probably almost exactly the same age which and I've been working for a similar amount of time and I totally relate with what you said about it feels when you think about it like that it feels really weird because sometimes I think I'm just out of uni but it sounds like you've achieved an awful lot in that time and I think the way that you talk about psychology and well-being and mental health perhaps the organization you work for was ahead of the curve a bit on this but actually it's something that I've noticed just explode in the last just in that time when I joined my graduate role which was five years ago this September we didn't really talk about mental health and it was within that first year that it really started to take off which I think always it's such a positive thing but it always gives me so much hope as well that some of these other real kind of paradigm shifts in how we think and talk about work and how people behave and all of that stuff. I didn't study psychology, but I sometimes think I should have because I definitely armchair diagnose people with things all the time, which is terrible behavior. And yeah. I should never do that. But because I find it really fascinating. So yeah, it's really interesting inside that. But obviously you mentioned your podcast. I love the concept of your podcast because as you say, it's all about names and how names intersect with different parts of our identity. What motivated you to start the podcast and to have that as your focus? I knew that I wanted to start a podcast. I think every, it was a stage during the coronavirus pandemic where everyone was starting a podcast. There's so many out there, which is great. And I was like, yeah, I want to start a podcast. But then I was like, okay, I don't want to do one just for the sake of doing a podcast. But I knew in the back of my head, okay, I want to start a podcast. So in a kind of short space of time, this was around... I think a year and a half ago, I had just randomly had conversations with completely different people, coincidentally around names. So I remember sitting in London Fields in Hackney uh, with a group of friends, and one of my friends, Jamie, was just randomly speaking about all the different names that he has. And I was like, that's really interesting. And then a few weeks later, I was speaking to someone else about naming traditions in Mm -hmm. Ghana. And then a few different kind of conversations. And then that really got me reflecting on my own name and the experiences that I've had with my name. So my first name is often mispronounced. You know, just yesterday it was mispronounced uh, persistently and I had to correct the person. So that's that's a, a kind of common experience of mine. And that's been kind of throughout my life uh, from school and then now into kind of the working world. Also, my full name is kind of weird. Uh, so it's Maya Mitsuko September Welford. So Mitsuko is my Japanese grandma's name. And September is the month that I was born in. So quite weird. I don't know why my parents did it, but they were like, yeah, it'll be fun to put like the month that I was born in as my name. And they've done the same kind of same for my sister. That doesn't necessarily come from like a country or a culture, but they've kind of made up their own tradition. And maybe I love that. Do, yeah, maybe I'll do it yeah. for my own kids. So yeah, it was really kind of inspired by my own experiences. And and also another one, when I was um, much younger, I actually wanted to change my name to like this really like English name. I went through this phase of being like, yeah, I'm changing my name. I'm probably like seven or eight or something. And I do think I look back and that's something I haven't shared actually openly before, but I do look back and I think that that's probably a reflection of like, 
me growing up in London and not really seeing I mean I do look like quite British but actually my mum's Japanese and I didn't there was a handful of like half Japanese half English children that I was so privileged to like be around but actually that was such a rarity so like at school there was no one who was of a similar background to me and I think I wanted to kind of I, I did definitely kind of deny that Japanese side to me and I was like let me just like lean in like I, I don't know whether it was conscious or subconscious but something within me was like let me just lean into the English side mm-hmm. I guess it comes down to like acceptance and feeling like I'd be more accepted if I was just English now obviously love my name embrace it and I really embrace my Japanese culture and I'm like why did, why did I ever do that but I guess it's kind of a result of the environment that you're in that perhaps yeah. allow you to feel fully yourself or included. It's so fascinating. I mean, I don't, my background is very like, like my family is like Celtic through and through, but I have a last name that people mispronounce or misspell constantly. And I cannot explain why we pronounce it the way that we do it. It's just the way we always have. So I can definitely relate because I think it's like my automatic tick whenever anyone asks me what my last name is, is to then spell it because I refuse to pronounce it wrong. So yeah, I can definitely relate to some of that. And I think that experience it's a really interesting reflection of some of the other things that the young people go through about lots of different aspects of their identity and how as young people we don't necessarily encourage people to embrace and flourish in anything that is different so yeah huge respect for that and so your podcast obviously you've you've interviewed lots of different people with very different kind of naming stories is there anything that you've really learned through that process or any particularly kind of interesting snippets that that you could share with us yeah definitely so I I love being able to have all these amazing meaningful conversations with people so what I've really learned is that people really tie their identity and sense of self to their name and this is something that I don't think I really actually thought about or grasped until all of these conversations that I've been having you know your name is such an important thing it's used I don't know how many times but like loads of times a day and what's interesting is actually people you as an individual barely say but actually it's said by so many different people which I think is why it's so important that you know we get names right we get them pronounced right if someone wants to change their name for whatever reason then we respect that So I've had, my first guest was a transgender woman called Joanne Monk, and she very openly shared kind of her naming story and how she chose her name. And then I've I've kind of done a bit of research into kind of the trans community and, and the whole naming thing. And I think it's what is such a crucial part of, I guess, the transition and acceptance is yeah. them by the name that you know they've chosen so I think what I've really learned is is that identity piece and that it's such an easy way to to allow someone to feel included like just get their name right yeah but also it's such an easy way to make someone feel excluded if you're getting their name wrong if you're mispronouncing it persistently I think you're absolutely right I mean that piece around you know, people have this problem with like allowing transgender people to choose their new name and will persistently use the wrong name and misgender them. And yet if somebody, if a if a woman gets married and changes her name to her husband's surname, nobody cares. You're so, so right about that. And it is such a basic thing, that ability to like spell somebody's name right and, and that respect. And I absolutely relate to so much of that. 
In terms of things like naming traditions, have you come across any particular naming traditions that you find really, really interesting through the work that you've done? Yeah, so there's a tribe community in Ghana and they, part of their naming tradition is giving the child a name based on the day of the week that they're born. And I think it's also related to their gender. So there's like the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Thursday, Sunday for girls and then the same for boys. And I really, I thought that was so fascinating when I heard about that because I was like, that's, that's something that, well, I guess actually thinking about it, it kind of links with me, like my parents decided to give me a name based on the yeah. month I was born. So I guess like those kind of things are quite significant if we mm-hmm. think about, you know, the significant of significance of like times and days of the week that we're born. And and there's this like there's this like rhyme that like my dad used to say when I was growing up, like Monday's child is full of grace and Yes. Yeah, I do know that. I can't remember. I was born on a Sunday and I can't remember what Sunday's child was. But yeah, absolutely. I get yeah. That. Yeah. So I guess it is a bit of a thing. But yeah, I learned about that. And I think it's it, it's a really, really strong tradition that this particular tribe practices. And mm-hmm. I really, really love that. And I guess it it's also like just from the name, you have a bit more information about that person. So like you'd know, oh, this person was born on a Monday. And I think that that's also really really interesting as well you wouldn't necessarily get that information if if they didn't have that name yeah it's not something you ask people right except for if maybe you're into horoscopes and star signs and um you know you ask people like when they were born so you can figure out what their what their star sign is and all of that which I don't really believe in but I find quite fun so I tend to do that to people (laughs) amazing so I want to talk a little bit about the other work that you do because as you say you know you work in a bank, you've worked in financial services. That's not the most typically inclusive or historically inclusive environment for, for women, for people of colour, for people from less privileged socioeconomic backgrounds. But it's from what I know, you've done a lot of work in that space around your job. What's driven you to do that? And what have your experiences been? So When I joined uh, the company that I work for now, I learned about these networks. Well, now they're called kind of employee resource groups. So the way I like to think about them is they're kind of like an extension of like university societies where employees come together, they think about particular issues. So there might be a, a kind of group dedicated to gender. There's a group dedicated to the multicultural agenda. There's groups linked to the LGBTQ plus agenda and so on. So all the kind of diversity pillars have these groups dedicated to them. And they're open for any employees to come along and join. So very, very early on, I joined the gender group. Mm -hmm. I'm a woman and I recognise to your point that there is a real lack of gender diversity within the uh, within organisations. You know, there are significantly less women in not only the financial services industry, but, you know, loads of different industries too. Yeah. And I kind of recognised that and I was like, okay, I want to join this group. I also joined because I wanted to meet different people and, and kind of build my network as well. So it's a great way to kind of build your networking and meet people. So I guess that motivated me to join that gender group. And I've done a lot of work and continue to do a lot of kind of work with them. And then more recently, actually, we launched our socioeconomic inclusion group. It's a mouthful. But essentially it's focused on raising awareness around social mobility and the socioeconomic inclusion agenda, which 
has been such a missing piece of the diversity, equity and inclusion puzzle. Like it's mm-hmm. more like the forgotten piece. Yeah. But actually now, within the past six months to a year, I've seen such an increase. It's similar to the point you raised about well-being earlier. Mm-hmm. Like I've seen such an increase in focus on this agenda, which is so great because... Mm-hmm. It is, for me, it has felt like the missing piece of the puzzle. And I guess yeah. for me personally, why I was so motivated to drive forward this group and, and now lead on engagement for this group is I come from a lower socioeconomic background. And I think that it's it's so important to be aware of and consider the barriers that someone from a lower socioeconomic background might experience in the run-up to starting their career, but then also in their career as well. There's research that has found that the the barriers don't stop when you get into the workplace, they just continue. So there was a piece of research that if there are two people who went to the same university, one's from a lower socioeconomic background, one's from a more privileged background, they went to the same university, did the same degree, got the same result. The one from the lower socioeconomic background is is on average paid less in their career than the person from the more privileged background so I think it shows that there's such a still such an issue within this country around the fact that where you're born really can determine your future outcomes later on in life which I think is it is just wrong and I think we should all be doing more about it so I'm so passionate about companies playing their role because we do have a role to play as as large corporates. Mm-hmm. We have such a role to play in in shifting that kind of needle. But I, I honestly think we've got such a long way to go with the social mobility agenda. Yeah. But yeah, for me, that's why I'm so passionate about it. So just this week, as part of that, I organised an insight day where we welcome young people from across the country to get an insight into the world of financial services mm-hmm. I'm still really really tired from that but it was such a day <laughs> and like just meeting the young people and, and hearing about their passions and their enthusiasms and, and being able to play that really really small role in raising their aspirations and, and supporting them with getting ahead it, it's just you know makes me smile when I go to sleep so yeah honestly, it's, it's kind of all the Obviously, I, I think my day role is great and I, I love all the kind of stuff that I'm doing in, in the work that I'm actually paid for. Actually, where I get a lot of my energy is from things like the podcast where I can mm-hmm. speak to really, really interesting people and things like all the initiatives that I'm doing at work and also outside of work to really have that impact on people's lives, especially those who perhaps need it the most. It's so multifaceted, right? And I mean, the the work is really rewarding. And I think you say that absolutely that's I mean I ended up leaving my corporate career to do this work full-time because it was the most rewarding part of my job and I I saw so many gaps but I think just just touching on some of the things you've said there like it's it is that helping people to understand that you know it's not just about making sure that you've got some more diverse representation in your workforce it's every single aspect of you know, from how people socialize to how people like socialize with their colleagues to how people go into a conversation about their pay review to every single aspect of it. And I think sometimes people think we're almost done with this sort of work. And I'm like, we are just like, 
scratching the surface we're just beginning with it and there is so so much still to do and it's really incredibly encouraging to see big established organizations really starting to invest in and then also to give people like you who are within those organizations who want to do this work the space and the resources to do it right like I always try not to give people too much credit because sometimes I'm like maybe this is the bare minimum but actually I think it's a really positive step forward I also wanted to ask about the mentorship program that you set up because that was something that you did fairly early on in your career which is kind of ballsy right to be like a new I mean that with like absolute respect yeah but like to be a kind of you know fairly new graduate and be like I'm gonna set up like a big mentoring scheme can you talk us through what you know where that came from and some of the impacts of it and and what that's been like for you yeah so that program is like my baby yeah what I really love about that is that I've been able to carry that through with me regardless of what kind of role I've been in that's been a constant throughout kind of the beginning so yeah as I mentioned I was part of our gender group Mm-hmm. And we were coming towards the end of the year. So we were, I joined the, the company in, in September. I joined the, the group then. And then it came to December time. And they were thinking about the strategy for the following year. So for 2019. And they're like, okay, come up with some ideas. And I was like, oh, how about like a mentoring program? We connect employees within our company with employees within the charity sector. Because I see so much mentoring and and kind of development for beneficiaries of charities which is absolutely the right thing to do but then I was thinking okay what what support is there for those who actually supporting the beneficiaries Mm -hmm. so the employees of these of these charities so I was like okay I I could maybe do something with with this I've personally really really benefited from mentoring and so I was really privileged to have a mentor when I was 17 as part of like a corporate responsibility program when I was in sixth form so I've really benefited from mentoring so I was like okay I want to do something with mentoring so yeah set that up at the end of 2018 so I was like only three months into my corporate career and yeah essentially it's a program which connects colleagues with employees within the charity sector mm-hmm. six months through mentoring partnerships in addition to that and and this wasn't from the first year but you know every year we've kind of iterated and improved but now we're also we've also introduced monthly skills development workshops for both mentors and mentees yeah and this is for two reasons one reason is I found that sometimes mentors and mentees have dropped out from the program mm-hmm life happens, they might leave, they might get sick, they might not want to be involved in the program anymore, that's fine. So I wanted to do something so to make sure that regardless of if your mentee or mentee or mentor kind of drops out, you've still got a bit of continuity throughout the program, there's a skill development side of things. So yeah, that's kind of the program, we're now global, so we had, last year we had some mentors and mentees in India, which was super exciting. And we started off at the beginning with 43 mentor-mentee matches, so around 80 in total, across seven charities. And these charities initially were aligned to charities working in the gender equity space, Mm -hmm. because it linked to the gender group that I was part of. But now actually we've really scaled up and we're collaborating with the different diversity, equity, inclusion groups across the company that I work for. So therefore we're engaging with charities across the spectrum. So we're partnered with over 30 charities and over 500 people have benefited from the program. So yeah, it's my baby and I love it. And I think that mentoring is such a powerful tool to support people to develop and grow in in whatever area that they want to. And what I think is so great about this program in particular is that it's 
it's completely cross industry. And what I've always been really, really keen to emphasize is that this is not the bank going in and saving the charity sector. Like I don't like that mentality at all. It's this is a two-way learning process and we have so much to learn from the charity sector and vice versa. So I really, really try and empower both mentors and mentees to see it as a two-way partnership and and that Mm -hmm. both sides really learn and grow from it. It's, as I say, like, it's really cool, but it's also, as someone who has worked in both a corporate and now in the third sector, that partnership aspect is so important. And as you say, like, making sure that we're supporting the people working in the third sector, because it is often very under-resourced, under-invested in. Those are the people who are going to bear the brunt of lower salaries, lower investment in their own career development, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it's hats off to you for for recognizing that challenge and and doing something about it. And the fact that it's gone global is just really cool to see. So we've talked a bit about socioeconomic inclusion. You mentioned that your own background has been one of had somewhat, I suppose, of a social mobility journey yourself. I'd be just be really interested to know if it's something you're happy to talk about, how you think that has impacted and made your experience different, harder, perhaps more challenging at times, because I think gathering evidence of those first person experiences is such a valuable part of what we can do to help really make the case that this is an area that we still need so much more investment in. Yeah, definitely. So I think, I guess from the the first thing that comes to mind is this piece around role models. So if you're from a lower socioeconomic background, So, for example, my dad left school at like 12 or 13. He's got dyslexia and he's just not very academically oriented. He's very, very creative and focuses more on the creative side and and more the manual is in manual labor. So more of the kind Mm -hmm. of manual doing stuff. And then my mom is from Japan. So she moved to the UK in her early 20s. So her first language isn't English. So I think it's also that intersectionality piece around. Yes. From like growing up poor, right? But then also having my dad who left school at an early age, which is as a result and and very linked to coming from a low socioeconomic background himself. And then my mum not having English as her first language. I think it's one of the difficulties for me growing up is I don't have someone there checking my homework when Mm -hmm. I'm submitting it. I don't have someone there able to help me at home with my university applications whereas someone from perhaps a more privileged background with parents who have degrees who you know have who are working within the corporate environment or professional environment are able to sit down and support Mm -hmm. them my parents couldn't give me that so I think that's a key one and that's from the very very beginning from a very very Mm -hmm. early age it's that your parental support they're less able for my parents they were less able to as much as they might have wanted to it's just mm-hmm. that less able to give me that academic support and that support and from a kind of career direction mm-hmm. so that's the first one and then I guess coming into the workplace and, and I guess navigating the corporate environment for me when I joined my uh, internship and then my grad scheme the, this was one of the first times that I've ever actually been into a corporate environment mm-hmm. and that's really really overwhelming yeah coming into this massive building, seeing people in suits, getting this like nice breakfast given to you all and these like nice cups of tea and biscuits like that was really alien to me. Yeah. So I think that 
element as well I think people take for granted and people Mm -hmm. like oh that's normal but actually it's not especially when you come from that lower socioeconomic background so I think it's that confidence piece and that that feeling comfortable within a corporate environment doesn't come as naturally to someone from from my kind of background also if we think about work experience so I did work experience in year 10 my school's like go and find work experience you need to do two weeks of it and Mm -hmm. this is to everyone and I think that this is like a, a nationwide thing if we think about it, it, the school's like, go and find your own work experience. It's like, okay, so for someone whose parents work at a corporate or work within kind of like professional services, and, and that's perhaps what someone wants to go into, they're more likely to get that experience because you're like, yeah. okay, I'm just going to bring my son or daughter or child into the, my workplace. Yeah. I, I volunteered within a charity shop. So not even in like charity head office, but just in a charity shop doing kind of retail, which was great. I developed a lot of different skills, but I didn't necessarily develop skills, which perhaps would have helped me more when I came to apply for internships and graduate programs compared to if I'd got experience within the corporate world at that earlier age, which some of my more privileged counterparts were able to get. Of course. So I think it's things like that that people don't quite grasp and don't quite get it. And and that's like, that's that I, I understand that because it's like, things are just taking for taking for granted and you know your experience you just see that as normal as you're going through it and it's also it's even things like how to put on a suit so Mm -hmm. how someone know how to tie a tie so if we think about a boy from a low socioeconomic background whose parents don't work and, and don't need to ever wear a suit unless they're going to a wedding or funeral for example how would that boy know how to tie a suit how would that boy know how to look presentable to an uh, an interview at in a corporate mm-hmm. work compared to someone whose parents can afford them a really really top suit and and help them with their type it's really small things like that oh yeah it makes such a difference because we 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 people are judged on their appearance mm-hmm. and how they present themselves whether that's right or wrong that's that's the kind of bias and assumption that comes yeah that last bit, it feel indulge me for a second because it really brings to mind something. So at my last job, I worked in a consultancy and we ran a work experience program in partnership with some social mobility charities. And I think it was in the second year that we ran it, we had this experience with this young man who he seemed really, really miserable. It was like a week-long program and his the person who was kind of looking after him so one of my colleagues came to me and was like really really worried about him he just seems really quiet and like he's not enjoying it and we're really struggling to kind of pull anything out of him so we took this young man aside he's 17 years old and we kind of said to him you know what's what's up like are you are you kind of struggling to engage is there anything we can do to help and he said my feet hurt and we were like what do you mean you're yeah he said well, I was so worried about looking smart coming to this place. My mum bought me some new shoes. And you know, you think as well, we'd always really tried to say, like, don't go out and buy new clothes. Yeah. Also, we weren't the smartest corporate environment yeah. anyway. So I was like, really don't buy new clothes. Yeah. So I just think, oh gosh, like his mum spent money on new shoes. And he took his shoes off and his feet were red raw, like covered in blisters. And we said to him, oh my goodness, like, please just wear comfortable shoes to what you can take your shoes off if you need to, like, you know, and it turned out that the reason he wasn't enjoying himself was because he'd never worn shoes like that before. And he said, like, I can't, you know, I feel so embarrassed and like, we're going to meet 
you know, because we kind of made a whole big thing that our CEO was going to come in the next day and meet all the students. He was like, I can't meet the CEO wearing trainers. Like he'll be, he'll think I'm totally a slob and all of that. And in the end, bless him, the colleague of mine who was kind of the supervisor for his group was like, well, I'm going to wear my trainers tomorrow. So, you know, and basically all of the guys who were my colleagues all wore their trainers the next day to get this young man to wear his trainers and to be comfortable. But it was something that you just wouldn't have ever thought about. But, you know, it's things like that. And you just think that idea. And if we hadn't, I mean, it wasn't any credit to me. It was credit to my colleague who was trying to get this young man to engage and, and was worried about him, that we actually in, you know, managed to get to the bottom of the issue. But it's just not something you would ever think about. And it is such an important aspect of helping young people not just get through the door because we got him through the door. Yeah, but he yeah. was having a miserable time yeah. because, I mean, you know, we all know, like life with blisters is not fun right so all of what you just said there totally speaks to me and I think something that really strikes me is that you're clearly very good at getting people to invest and engage in this space you've obviously had some success within your role and your current working environment in doing that what is and I I hate this because I often think oh I don't want there to be a business case for DEI, but there has to be right especially in corporate environments what is the case that that you would make to any organization that's thinking I just don't know if this is worth us spending our money and our resources on what case and what argument would you make to them so number one you know we know it's the right thing to do so that's mm-hmm. kind of let's get out of the way it, it is just fundamentally yeah. the right thing to do but the second point is there has been research time and time again that's shown that if you bring people from diverse backgrounds together the output is better. Yes. And that's because <laughs> if we're all carbon copies of each other and if we're all thinking in, in exactly the same way, we're just going to come up with the same solutions to the same problems. But actually, if we're bringing people from different backgrounds, from different ethnicities, from different genders and so on into, into the space together, they're going to inevitably come up with unique solutions, innovative solutions and be much more creative. Um, so actually, you know, for, for companies who are still like, oh, I don't know about diversity, equity, inclusion, it's do you want to have better solutions? Do you want to be in yeah. Do you want to be creative? Do you want to move forward with mm-hmm. whatever products, services that, that you're offering within your company? If yes, then you have to invest in diversity, equity, inclusion and take it seriously. I also see a lot of companies just either throwing money at it or paying lip service to this space. Yeah. I think people are able to now see through that and and kind of realize when. So it's kind of greenwashing, but obviously not from an environmental perspective, but it's, yeah, you can see when you're not being genuine and we can see when you're just Uh ticking a box. Right. And that's just not good enough. And I think ultimately, if if the company does want to progress and and actually does want to, number one, have a positive impact on society, which I believe all companies should be striving to do. But number two, actually, to the point that I just raised, like progressing your products, progressing your services and and being a leader in your field, you have to be taking this space seriously. And also, if you want to attract the upcoming generation, the upcoming generation (laughs) care a lot about corporate social responsibility the environment and, and diversity equity, equity inclusion if you're not focusing on it 
they won't work for you. They'll go somewhere else. So if you want the future leaders, you need to be a leader in the DEI space. And I mean, that is what we're focused on at Good Work is, is about bringing in their next generation. And we're focused on the quote unquote diverse talent and supporting young people who have experienced marginalization to, to access workplaces. But more and more, as we engage with that younger generation, you see that it's not just the people who don't aren't currently accessing those workplaces who care about this stuff. I think Gen Z have a lot to teach all of us about inclusion and diversity and nobody really wants to work for an organization in that generation that doesn't take this stuff seriously and people will leave and move on. I'm so with you on that. It's so important. And again, I think it's also about, as you say, like lip service, impact measuring too. It's always really inspiring to me to see, you know, for example, with your mentorship scheme, how much focus you put on outputs and making sure it's a tangibly useful experience because you do see so many corporates who just kind of whack a label out there and say, we're going to do mentoring. And then if you look at the impact monitoring of that program, for example, it's just something to post about on LinkedIn and it's so frustrating. And I think as someone who works in this sector, yeah, that's something that is is really crucial because sometimes you talk to organizations and they're like, oh, we do all this stuff already. And I'm like, do you? Yeah. How is that going? Let's talk about that. Yeah. So there's a couple of final things I'd, I'd love to ask you. I would love to ask you about any books or podcasts that you're particularly into that tell people a bit more about this work and your areas of interest. But I'd like to add to that, if there's an episode or two of your podcast that you'd say, like, start here, these are the, the I know it's so difficult, we don't want to choose favourites, but if there is, I would love to hear it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So I actually brought a book with me. Oh my gosh. It is Invisible Woman. Yes. Do you know it? I do. In fact, somebody else recommended this Ah, um, in an earlier episode. So it's like, Ah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, It's it's honestly my favourite book. It's so interesting, so eye-opening. Each chapter is dedicated to like a different topic, an area within Mm -hmm. society. So there's like a topic around transportation and kind of navigating around this one on like the medical field and it's all around how the world that we know it is designed for men Mm -hmm. it's super eye-opening love this book in terms of podcasts I'm going to plug my own so go ahead and go and listen (laughs) that's my name I think I'm obviously biased but I think that it allows people to think about diversity equity inclusion from a very kind of different and unique angle you know we all have a name this is something that we can all kind of resonate with but everyone has a different story so I would say go and listen to that in terms of episodes I don't know when this this episode's coming out I've got a really really interesting episode which should be out by the time that this is released with someone called Greg Bunbury so he works Mm -hmm. within design space and he shares about slave names wow behind slave names and he's got a really really interesting story about his surname Mm -hmm. so I really enjoyed recording that and I'm Mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to releasing that one that also stuck with me is an episode with a guest called Yelling Yoon so she grew up in South Korea Mm -hmm. aged four in her English class the teacher said okay line up boys girls here's like a hat go come and pick your English name out of a hat and that name stuck with her for a few years so she got the name Claire and that name just stuck with her for a few years you know it makes me think of like when particularly 
Chinese or other Asian young people come to the UK like for boarding school and sit form or something and traditionally get asked to pick a name and what always really sticks with me about that is that sometimes they might pick something that as a kind of socialite like someone who was brought up in the UK comes across as being like a bit of a weird name and then that becomes a source of bullying like it's fascinating to me because I definitely kind of met people who that's been true for in the past which is basically you get told to pick an English name you pick one and then you get told that the name that you've picked is like embarrassing or weird and then that's because it's an old lady name or it has a strange meaning in English when you don't take it kind of literally so that that's fascinating I'll definitely look that up yeah and then there's also the episode with princess so Princess Alagampi, who she shared a really interesting story in her about her experiences with applying for jobs. Mm-hmm. She was applying for jobs on her CV. It was her name, Princess Alagampi. She wasn't getting any interviews. Then one day, I think her brother was like, oh, why don't you just change the name on your CV? So she changed it to Prin Adu or Prin Adu. She was suddenly getting interviews and started getting job offers. And there is research that, again, has been replicated time and time again that has found if you have a more English-sounding or Western-sounding name, you're more likely to get interviewed and you're more likely to be successful in that job application, which is ridiculous. Like, especially when you have CVs, when they've tested it with CVs that are identical, it just really highlights the bias that humans possess. Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting. Well, Maya, thank you so much for your time today. This has been such an interesting conversation. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you share it with friends and colleagues, leave us a review and check you're subscribed so you don't miss us next week. To keep up with all things Good Work, follow us at Good Work UK on LinkedIn. The Good Work podcast is brought to you by Good Work, a social impact business on a mission to make early careers fairer, more inclusive and more meaningful. We're working to remove barriers for young people from less privileged backgrounds and support businesses to reimagine their approach to entry-level talent and skills. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time.